We're going to uh, finish the life of Moses, and uh, you should find an outline in the bulletin. There are printed messages at the exits. Feel free to get up and get one now if you missed it. Uh, Somebody, several have asked, did you plan this series to coincide with when you retire? And uh, the answer is no. I, I planned this series long before I knew Dave Barry existed. And um, I had no idea. I mean, I knew I was planning to retire after Stan did, but I had no idea where we would be in the process. And in the providence of God, it's kind of coincided with the timing of things. And my wife said, I sure hope that this last message isn't prophetic on the death of Moses. And uh, I said, well, you know, I hope not too, but I'd like to keep kicking for another decade or two here, but um, we come to the final chapter in Deuteronomy that tells us about Moses' departure from this earth and uh, his handoff of his ministry to Joshua. So follow along as I read verse 1, now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, that's way in the north, and all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea. So the picture's going around kind of counterclockwise from the north. And the Negev, that's the desert down in the south. And the plain in the valley of Jericho, that's to the east of Jerusalem, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but No man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord commanded, had commanded Moses. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. I admit that maybe I'm weird, but I uh, often read obituaries in the local paper, even for people I don't know. I, I find it interesting to read what family members say about their departed loved one. Uh, what are they remembered for? And most often it's their relationships with family or friends, uh, their careers, their favorite activities and hobbies. 
But it's not just interesting, it's also kind of sobering to read those obituaries because I realize that one day someone will write one on me. And what will I be remembered for? One time in uh, California, I had a funny experience. The phone rang and the woman on the other end said, Father Cole. And I said, well, I do have children and I am a father and my name is Cole. But I said, are, are you looking for the Catholic priest? And she said, yes. And I said, well, just a minute, I'll get his number for you. And she said, well, you're, you're a reverend, aren't you? And I said, well, I am the pastor of a church here. And she said, oh, that, that, that'll do. <laughs> and I said, how can I help you? And she said, well, my father died and I need someone to conduct the funeral. So I met with her and her three, or two siblings, three of them all together, all young adults, you know, in their 30s probably. And uh, in the course of talking about the funeral service, I, I said something like, well, you know, at a time of, of loss and death, you might be interested to know what the Bible says about how you can have eternal life. And I proceeded to share John 3.16 with them, that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. And the, the woman who had called me was growing increasingly agitated, and she finally blurted out and said, Are you saying our dad's in hell? And I said to her, ma'am, I didn't know your father at all. And I have no idea what his relationship with God was. I said, I, I just thought that you would want to know how you can be sure that you'll go to heaven when you die. And she sort of calmed down and we got through the, the meeting. And since I didn't know the man, I asked them to do the eulogy. So at the funeral, the three of them got up at the pulpit and you know, put their arms around each other, and they read a prepared eulogy that you could title, We Remember Dad. We remember Dad going into the bar and buying a round of drinks for all his buddies because Dad loved going to the bar. We remember Dad going into the supermarket and flirting with all of the young clerks because Dad liked cute young women. And basically, they were saying, we remember dad as a dirty old drunk, you know. And then I got up and preached the gospel, and my associate who was sitting in the back was doing all he could to keep from busting out laughing at the disparity of this funeral service. But the important question that all of us need to ask is not how would you like your family and friends to remember you when you pass away. But what would God say if he wrote your obituary? And in our text, we have the obituary that God wrote about Moses, his servant. It was added according to verse 10, sometime after Moses died, of course, he couldn't have written this chapter himself, but I believe that all scripture is inspired by God, and so whoever wrote this chapter was inspired by God to add it to Deuteronomy, and so I believe that this is God's inspired obituary on this great prophet Moses. And the lesson for us is that since we all will stand before God, we need to live with 
his obituary for our lives constantly in view. What is the Lord going to say? And there are basically three options with some breadth under each one. Uh, I hope for every one of us we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Some of us, you might hear him say, well, your works are over there on the bonfire, but by my grace, come on in. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says, some, their works are going up in smoke, but they will be saved. Um, He doesn't use this phrase, but kind of by the skin of their teeth. Or, I hope nobody hears the awful words of Matthew 7.23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Four lessons I'd like to bring out from Moses' obituary in Deuteronomy 34. The first one is that since we all will die, unless, of course, the Lord Jesus returns first, we need to live with eternity in view of our lives. Now, last week, we looked at what Moses knew about God, and he knew God very well. God spoke with him face to face, in a manner that he didn't even speak with his brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam. Uh, He didn't speak that way with other prophets. But it's interesting that when we come to the end and we read God's obituary on Moses, he doesn't mention Moses knowing God. He mentions God knowing Moses in verse 10. It says, whom the Lord knew face to face. The Lord knew Moses. And that parallels in reverse the Lord's terrible words that I just cited from Matthew 7, 23. I never knew you. I never knew you. He doesn't say you never knew me, but I never knew you. And so it seems to me that a very crucial question is not do you purport to know God But does God truly know you? Now maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, God's omniscient, he knows everybody. True. But when it talks in the Bible about God knowing someone, it's referring to God's foreknowledge of that person. And all scholars agree that God's foreknowledge means that he chooses that person to know him. He knows them in advance. In Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, Paul gives that great unbreakable chain. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, many people are mistaken because they think, well, God's foreknowledge knows that he looked down through history and knew that I would choose him. That is not what the Bible teaches. And I can't go into and defend that now. If you want that, go to my message in Romans 8.29. But all scholars agree God's foreknowledge means that He chose to know you before you existed. Well, now maybe you're thinking, oh, great, what if God didn't choose me? 
But what if God didn't predestine me to eternal life? Then what? The Bible never presents the doctrine of God's election or predestination of someone to discourage anyone from coming to Jesus Christ. The Bible always addresses sinners with the message, come. It ends on that note. Come, come, come. Let the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let the one who's thirsty come and drink of the water of life freely. Um, and, and you know Jesus' invitation that he gave to every weary soul in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, the implication there is with your sin, and I will give you rest. So the invitation to everyone is come. A lot of people love that verse, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, and they don't bother to read the previous verse. Have you ever read the previous verse? Matthew eleven twenty seven. you should, if you're reading the Bible in context. There Jesus says this, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And if you read the broader context, which I don't have time to do, uh, verses 17 to 26, you'll realize Jesus does not will to reveal the Father to every person. He's selective in who he does that. He reveals the Father to those to whom the Father has granted such knowledge. And I put several verses there in the printed notes if you want to see where I'm coming from on that claim. And so then the vital question is this. How can I know that God knows me? And the biblical answer is, have you come to Jesus for salvation? Have you abandoned trusting in yourself, your good works, all of the other things people trust in, and instead you've fled to Christ and you've trusted in his shed blood as the only payment to cover all your sins? And the Bible is clear, if you've done that, it wasn't because you were smarter or wiser or more intelligent than anybody else around you. It's because God graciously opened your eyes to see the truth. He opened your eyes to reveal the glory of Christ to you. And if he has done that, then live every day in view of giving an account to him someday soon. Now, sometimes when we think about that, we compare ourselves to guys like Moses, and we think, oh man, that guy's up here, and I'm way down here. But Moses was unique. He was unique in all of the Bible. Uh, God used Moses to found the nation of Israel. God used Moses to get the law and give them to Israel. There are very few who have such an important role as Moses. For the average Israelite, though, it was enough to love God and obey his commandments. And Moses says that in Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13. He says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? And he answers it. But to fear the Lord your God, 
to walk in all his ways, to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. And it's the same thing when we move into the New Testament. Sometimes I think we compare ourselves with the Apostle Paul and think, oh, wow, you know, I, I can't do what that man did. He was unique. But for most of us, again, loving God, loving one another, beginning at home, where we demonstrate the love of Christ to one another, uh, living and serving faithfully in God's church, as he gives us opportunity, bearing witness to others. Those are the things God wants all of us to do. And to do that, God has to be central in our daily lives, in our thinking. That's why it's so important to begin each day in the Word, with the Lord, and in prayer. Uh, it sets your whole day on course. But it's still a battle. Throughout the day, we all get busy with a zillion things, even those of us who are in full-time ministry. It's not easy. And so you have to keep fighting for that Godward perspective. Keep coming back again and again to set your mind on those things above where Christ is. But live in view of the fact someday God is going to write my obituary. And what do I want him to say? The second lesson here from Moses' obituary is that we can take comfort in the fact that God is sovereign over the time and the manner of our deaths. Moses, as we saw in our study, got angry at the people for their complaining and sinfully he struck the rock to bring forth water when God told him to speak to it. And because of that sin, God determined Moses would not bring Israel into the promised land. And throughout the Pentateuch, he reminded Moses of that judgment more than once. Moses pleaded with the Lord, Lord, let me cross over and see the land. But God refused. But he does let him go up on the mountain just before he dies and get this vision or view of the land. And so now the time has come. God tells Moses, go up on the mountain, view the land, and then you'll die there. Uh, he says that back in Deuteronomy 32. But the comforting thing is this. God is sovereign over when and how we all die. Uh, he's arranged the very day, according to Psalm 139. Even before there was one of them, God arranged all of our days. And even if, like Moses, we die alone, we're not alone. Because God was there with Moses. And God will be there with you and me when we die. Some, of course, get an advanced warning. You go to the doctor and he shakes his head and says, I'm sorry, but you've only got maybe six months to live. Others, no warning at all. It's just sudden, unexpected. And you know, the fact is, there isn't a single person sitting here who is guaranteed that you'll be alive tomorrow. I, I've said that often in sermons, and I said it once in California in a sermon. And in the congregation that day was an older couple who had um, moved to a little warmer place. We were in the mountains over there where it snowed, and they'd moved down to the warmer area. 
But they were back that Sunday visiting. On their return home, a driver crossed over the center line, hit him head on. The wife was killed instantly. The husband was permanently disabled in a wheelchair the rest of his life. And I had to do her memorial service. They didn't know that would be their last day. My daughter and her husband recently, the ones in Thailand, recently emailed and said that they knew a young couple from when they were in Bible school who were serving in Brazil. And the husband in his 30s was out playing soccer with a bunch of guys and fell down and died. He didn't think, this soccer game is my last act on earth. Another time in California, there was a young couple serving with crew, and um, they just got away for a weekend at Palm Springs, and he was getting out of the jacuzzi, and he was dizzy, and he fell down and hit his head and went to be with the Lord. Again, I'm sure he wasn't thinking as he got into that jacuzzi, this is my last act on earth, but it was. So some get a warning, some don't. With Moses, it wasn't a health issue. It says in uh, verse 7 that his eye was not dim and his vigor was not abated. Rather, he died because of verse 5, according to the word of the Lord. And he went up to that mountain knowing that he was going to die. That'd be kind of scary. I'm going to die up there. <laughs> But he went calmly, and John Calvin points out, such willing submission proceeded from no other source than faith in God's grace, whereby alone all terror is mitigated and set at rest, and the bitterness of death is sweetened. And so if your faith is in God's grace to you in Jesus Christ through the gospel, you can face the day of your death with calm assurance, knowing I'm in God's hands. And I'm invincible until it's time to go, and when I go, I will be with Him. It's a great assurance. A third lesson for us here out of Moses' obituary is that even the greatest of leaders may die with disappointments and unanswered prayers. In spite of his failure, in striking the rock at Meribah and God's judgment, you're not going to lead them into the land. Verse 5 says, Moses, the servant of the Lord. That's a great designation. He was the servant of the Lord. And that means God's hand was still on his servant. But God's holiness required that his disobedience have this severe consequence of not leading Israel into the land. And it was a lesson to all of Israel that we must treat God as holy. He is holy. We must treat him as holy. You know, even the greatest of leaders don't get a free pass when it comes to disobedience. In fact, the Bible says that um, we who teach will incur a stricter judgment than those who do not teach. And David, you see it, when he sinned with Bathsheba, God forgave his sin, but he didn't lighten the consequences of his sin. There was a baby conceived in David's sin with Bathsheba, and David humbled himself, fasted, and prayed for a week that that child would live, 
and God took the child. And then as you read the narrative, there was problem after problem after problem in David's family tied back to his sin. Now at first, when God decreed that Moses would not cross over, Deuteronomy 3, Moses says that he entreated the Lord to let him cross over to the land. And then in Deuteronomy 3, 26, the Lord said to Moses, Enough! Speak to me no more about this matter. And so in that chapter, Moses then shifts his focus and says, Well, God, what about these people? And God appoints Joshua to succeed um, Moses. The Lord, however, was gracious. And so at the end here, he allows Moses to go up on this mountain and get this view of the promised land. And I think verse 7 is in there about Moses' eye not dim and his vigor not abated to show the grace of God. Number one, for a 120-year-old man to climb a steep, rugged mountain with no trail, you got to have some vigor. <laughs> you got to have some strength to do that. And God graciously gave Moses, without a walker, the strength to get up on top of that mountain. And then it says, his eye was not dim. And so he got a vision of all the land without eyeglasses. He could look out without binoculars and see the land. Now you have to ask the question though, are verses 1 to 3 literal? I mean, was, was this a supernatural vision of the land? Because it would be impossible from a mountain there across the, the Jordan River to see everything that is described in verses 1 through 3. For one thing, the, the mountains surrounding Jerusalem would block your view of the Western Sea, the Mediterranean. So <clears throat> could have been a spiritual vision in the Gospels, Satan took Jesus up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, that had to be a spiritual vision because you couldn't see all the kingdoms of the earth from a mountain somewhere around there. Could have been that, or maybe the text is just using hyperbole, saying he got this vast view of the promised land. We don't know. As he gazed at the land, though, one commentator observed that he must have had a sense of accomplishment mixed with disappointment. He thought about all that God had used him to do, the accomplishments. He had led these, these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob out of centuries of cruel slavery in Egypt. He had seen God part the Red Sea and lead them across to save them from their enemies. And then God brought that sea back on their enemies so that Israel was able to go on into the wilderness. He had seen the daily manna. He had seen water from the rock, the quail that met their need for, for meat. There was that cloud that protected them during the day from that blazing desert sun and then the pillar of fire at night to give them warmth and light. There was the Ten Commandments that God had given Moses on the mountain and the other laws that governed God's people. Uh, there was the pattern for the tabernacle and now it was built and, and all of the instructions about worship and sacrifice and the priests and all of that. And all of that was in place. And he had showed Moses how to organize the leadership of the nation. And yet in spite of all of those accomplishments, Moses must have looked across there and felt a little bit disappointed. 
a little disappointed. I can't go over there. You know, he couldn't take Israel into their promised inheritance. Other than the Pentateuch, the only scripture we know for sure Moses wrote was Psalm 90. And in Psalm 90, he laments how our brief lives are like grass. They grow up in the morning, by evening it's withered under the hot desert sun. And he laments how Israel in the wilderness had been consumed by God's anger. And then in verse 17, Moses prays in Psalm 90, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. And then he repeats to assure himself, I'm sure, yes, confirm the work of our hands. And I've often thought if a guy like Moses had to pray that, how much more do I and do you? You know, our works are so feeble, but Lord, would you confirm for us the work of our hands? And the longer I've been a pastor, the more I'm painfully aware of my many shortcomings and how God, it's got to be your grace and your power because there are many times I confess I have not prayed as often or as fervently as I should about a problem. Uh, I wrestle with unanswered prayers, broken marriages that remain broken. I feel disappointment and discouragement over people who leave the church after I have sought to help them. And You know, there, there are disappointments. The worst are when people fall away from the Lord. But God is still gracious, and he lets us kind of get up on the mountain and get a glimpse of the land. And that's in the book of Revelation or in the rest of the New Testament that promises Jesus is coming back. And when he comes, he's going to win big time. And his kingdom will come. And he's going to triumph and, and his kingdom will endure forever. Now in Moses' case, he had two unfulfilled prayers. You remember back in Exodus 33, he said, God, show me your glory. God said, I can't do that, Moses. Can't do that. I'll cover my, you with my hand and you'll get kind of a glimpse of my back. And then the other prayer in Deuteronomy 3.25, Moses said, let me cross over and see the fair land. And God said, uh-uh, I'll take you up on the mountain and you get a glimpse of it over there, but you're not going to set foot in it. You know what? By God's grace, both of those prayers have been answered. Because on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses stood there with Elijah and the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they saw the glory of Jesus. He, he, his face shone like the sun, and he was clothed in white raiment, and he saw the glory. And you know where he was standing? In the land. He was in the land. So God is gracious, isn't he? And, you know, you might die with disappointments, and you might die with unanswered prayers. But when you die, you're going to see the glory of Jesus. And you're going to have your feet in the land, so to speak. The blessings of heaven are going to make up for more than all of the disappointments that you have experienced in this mortal life. 
So the first lesson of Moses' obituary is that since we're all going to die, we need to live every day with eternity in view. The second lesson is we can take comfort in God's sovereignty regarding the time and the manner of our death under his control. And then the third lesson, even the greatest leaders do die with disappointments and unanswered prayers. And then finally, although even the greatest leaders die, God's program goes on unabated. Al Mohler tells the story of an old preacher who was trying to impress on younger preachers to remember, you're going to die. And he said to these younger preachers, they're going to put you in a box, and they're going to put the box in the ground, and they're going to throw dirt on your face, and then they're all going to go back to the church and eat potato salad. kind of a blunt way to put it, but it certainly drives the point home. I am not indispensable. I am expendable. And when I die, everybody eats potato salad and God's program goes right on. It doesn't even miss a beat. He will have his way and his will without me. And here God reminds Moses of his covenant promises. I'm going to give the land in verse 4 to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just as I promised that I would do. And earlier, when God, Moses asked God to appoint a man as his successor <clears throat> so that his people would not be like sheep without a shepherd, in Numbers 27, 18, God said, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. And now in verse 9, We're reminded that Joshua was filled with the spirit of wisdom. I think the word spirit should be capitalized there, the Holy Spirit. And it reminds us that Moses had laid his hands on Joshua. He was the one God appointed. And the point is, leaders come and leaders go, but God's program goes right on. He is the main factor in good leadership, and his spirit who dwelled in Moses, now dwelled in Joshua. And the two men had very different gifts. And yet God used Joshua with his gifts to take Israel and conquer the land of Canaan. After Joshua, of course, were those distressing days of the judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes. But God was still working. And then, remarkably, un in an unlikely manner, from a descendant of Rahab the harlot. You read about her in Joshua in the early chapters. She was a woman who believed that God would do as he had said he would do, and she asked the two spies to spare her and her family by faith. And remarkably, from Rahab, God raised up David. He's a descendant through Rahab. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 1. And then after David, as you know, there were times when God's kingdom hung by a thread, when wicked Athaliah slaughtered all the descendants of David, except one, a little baby who was kept safe. And so the line that goes down to Christ was hanging by that one thread. 
And then they were exiled in Babylon and they had all of those trials. They were conquered by other nations during the intertestamental period. And then you read in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 how Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, was born according to the promise. God's program was right on target. Even though to those living in those troubled times, they might have thought, oh, all is lost. It wasn't. And Jesus, it says in the book of Hebrews, well, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses had predicted a prophet greater than he who would arise, and that's Jesus. And then in Hebrews chapter 3, it says, Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, but Christ was faithful as a son over God's house. And then, of course, since the time of Christ and the apostles, the church has had its ups and downs. There have been heretics who have led thousands of people astray. There have been thousands of martyrs slaughtered by evil men. But still, the book of Revelation assures us one day soon, we're going to hear the angel of the Lord announce, Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Note, and he will reign forever and ever. That's our hope. Amen. Notice verse 6 of our text. It says, He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows the burial place to this day. Now some commentators think that he God buried him through the agency of other men who went up there and buried him. But I think the last part of that verse says, no, no man knows the place of his burial. I think God buried him. Now, it is possible that God used the angel, the archangel, Michael, to bury Moses. And I say that because of a rather mysterious verse in Jude chapter 9. Jude 9 says this, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, that's a mysterious verse because there is no other reference to that situation in all of Scripture. Some uh, compare it... Um, to Zechariah chapter 3, where there's a scene in heaven where Satan is accusing Joshua, the high priest, before the Lord, and the Lord rebukes Satan, takes off Joshua's filthy garments, clothes him with a clean robe and turban. And so some think that what happened is God sent Michael to bury Moses. The devil said, He's mine because he's a murderer. He killed that Egyptian taskmaster. And Michael said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. He belongs to the Lord. And so God had forgiven Moses' sin. And so that would be a wonderful assurance like we have in Romans 8.1. If the devil accuses you and you're in Christ, you can claim uh, there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are secure in him, not because of a perfect track record, but because of the blood of Jesus that covers all our sin. Another theory 
is that maybe Satan wanted Moses' body to set up a shrine where Israel would fall into idolatry going and worshiping the body of Moses. You know, they did that with the um, uh, brass serpent, the bronze serpent, and Hezekiah had to finally destroy it. Uh, Today, you have Roman Catholics in the Orthodox Church who venerate relics, you know, supposed pieces of the cross or bones of the apostles and all that kind of thing. The Bible is clear. We are to worship no one other than the Lord Jesus himself. Now, even though Israel often complained against Moses, they accused him of taking them out in the desert to kill them and their children. When he dies, verse 8 says, they mourned for him 30 days. And the lesson there is, we often don't realize the blessing that our loved ones are until they're gone. And so make sure while your loved ones are living that you tell them you appreciate them, you love them, because... You know, you can't do that when they're gone. And then the end of the verse says, the uh, days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. And even when a loved one dies, there comes a point you have to move on and just establish a new normal without them. You have the hope you'll be reunited with them in heaven, but you can't grieve forever. So God's obituary then of this great prophet Moses should make us think often about what he's going to say someday about us. Back in the 1980s, I read an interview, I think it was in Christianity Today, and I combed my files, and after about an hour I couldn't find it, so this is memory, okay? I I don't have the exact printed source, I'll find it someday when I go through my files, Uh, But there was an interview with Jerry Falwell. Uh, At the time, Jerry Falwell was the pastor of a 20,000-member church. Their services were on television nationwide every Sunday. Falwell was the founder and president of Liberty University, now a large, thriving university back in Virginia. He was at the time the founder and president of the moral majority that had helped uh, bring Ronald Reagan into the presidency and was having a great impact on American politics. And I remember the interviewer asked Falwell, what do you want to be remembered for? Now, in light of who he was, you know, he was a very famous and successful man by any standard. I admit, he wasn't my favorite guy at the time until I read this response. And he shot up in my estimation. Falwell said this, I want to be remembered as a godly husband to my, fa- to my wife, a godly father to my children, and a godly pastor over Christ Church. And I thought, wow, he nailed it. He didn't let his fame and his success go to his head. And I'll always remember that because I thought, exactly, that's what I want to be remembered for. So what do you want to be remembered for? Whatever your gifts and whatever your calling in life, I think the life of Moses, the servant of the Lord, should motivate us to want God to say at our obituary, he or she was my faithful servant. 
Dear Father, I pray that the life of Moses would impress us with this faithful man who followed you in spite of his shortcomings and his sins. You used him in such a mighty way, and I realize he was unique. But Lord, each one of your children is gifted. And I pray you would use them to be faithful, faithful in their families, faithful in your church, faithful in the world, that someday soon, as we hear the last trump sound, and we are caught up to meet you in the air, we will rejoice in what you've accomplished through us by your grace. Father, if any are here without the Savior, I pray they would see how vain, futile, and worthless life is to live without Jesus, that they would flee to him now while there is time. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to